You're listening to a selection of stories from this week's Morning Ireland. There's been a further setback to the COVID vaccination schedule following the latest recommendation on the AstraZeneca vaccine. The National Immunisation Advisory Committee, or NIAC, has recommended that the vaccine only be given to those aged 60 and over. The move was prompted by reports of unusual but severe blood clots in a very small number of people who had been given this vaccine. Up until now, the AstraZeneca vaccine has generally been given to healthcare workers and to those at very high risk from COVID-19 due to underlying medical conditions. In another change, those under 60 without a high-risk condition will now have to wait 16 weeks between doses. Kiron McIntyre is a student nurse who got his first dose of AstraZeneca in February. Under the old criteria, he would have been due to receive his second dose at the end of May. Last night he told our reporter Joan O'Sullivan about the uncertainty he's feeling. I suppose we're all kind of concerned that and you know, this isn't the first time that the AstraZeneca vaccine has been in the news about this either and kind of complicated to process it in your head because uh, obviously you can't take the vaccine out of you and I don't think a lot of us would um, either. The news us today is kind of one of uncertainty and a slight bit disheartened at the process as well. You know, when you've when you've received a, a new medication such as the vaccine, you kind of want to be um, certain to a certain extent of what, what you've t- taken. And you know, I suppose we kind of are to to the extent of our knowledge certain that it's a it's a safe vaccine. But when you're told, you know, two months after you've gotten it that actually your age group it wouldn't get it now it kind of draws a bit of concern i think though for us the main concern at the minute is the fact that um we don't actually know when we're getting the second dose um because originally it was planned for three months after the original the, like the, the starting dose from what we can see with the um the niac's recommendations is that that's been pushed back to four months after uh the original dose which um isn't kind of keeping in line with the original uh, guidance or information we were told before we got the vaccine Anne Coyne from Roscommon is a social care worker. She told our reporter Ailey Sheehy that she's disappointed she will have to wait an additional four weeks to receive her second dose of the vaccine Well I feel a little bit frustrated to be honest because it's prolonging me getting a second vaccine for another four weeks. I'm a frontline worker and I should be fully vaccinated as quick as can be. My dad will be fully vaccinated before I am because he got Pfizer. He got his first dose last week and he's getting his second dose in three weeks time. It's pushing everything out like getting back to any sort of normality for another month. Do you have any concerns about getting the second dose? I'm not concerned. I was quite sick after the first dose in that I had like flu-like symptoms, but they went after 48 hours. And I feel I know most of the symptoms of a blood clot. I feel the risk of COVID is much worse or the risk of getting a blood clot if you have COVID is much higher than what it is from AstraZeneca from what the data is telling us at the moment. A second dose of the vaccine is just what I'm aiming for. It's what's been getting me through like going to work every day as a frontline staff, fully vaccinated. That's been my goal all along and now that's been pushed out for another month. And that was Anne Coyne from Roscommon speaking to our reporter Ailey Sheehy. Joining us now on the line is Professor Karina Butler, who's chair of the National Immunisation Advisory Committee. Good morning and thanks for joining us. Good morning, Rachel. This is a big move. Can you outline why you felt this recommendation was necessary? Uh, Yes. Um, Everybody knows we're in the midst of the COVID pandemic and it is a serious enemy We've lost in this country over 4,700 lives to COVID. Uh, We know that in some areas and in some age groups, those rates have been much, much higher. Uh, Listening to even some of your speakers earlier this morning on the radio, we've heard rates of even as high as one in 10 deaths for our extreme elderly and frail in nursing homes. So, yes, we have a significant threat on the one side. And we have great scientific advance on the other side. We have vaccines. And we don't just have one vaccine. We have a number of vaccines. And all of those vaccines have proven incredibly effective at preventing hospitalization and death. So that is wonderful. However, it has emerged that with one of the vaccines, and this could happen with something else about some uh, different vaccine in a month's time, these are the things we have to watch out for it emerged that there was a safety signal 
And now that has been reported as possibly a very rare side effect of the vaccine, but a side effect that is what we say of high consequence. It's serious because for those who get this very rare clotting with low platelets, um, people have died. Now it is rare, about four to 10 in a million people might get this clotting event, but only one in a million will die. But still, that's a very high rate. So we have a very rare side effect, but with a very significant consequence. But on the other hand, we have a disease that actually has a very high rate of death as well. So what we are trying to do, knowing how much disease is around the place, what the rates of this are, trying to define who might be most at risk, we're trying to wend a safe path through those competing risks and balancing it as best as is possible. So that is what we're trying to do. We absolutely want to defeat COVID on the one hand, but we don't want to raise any unnecessary risk on the other hand. So the first thing I would say, if AstraZeneca was the only vaccine that we had available, this conversation would not be taking place because the benefits for everybody would hugely, hugely, hugely outweigh the risks. But there are other vaccines. And the other issue at the moment is that our risk from COVID because of vaccination and because of everything else that people have been doing, that risk is decreasing slightly. We're not quite as likely to get it as we would have been in the middle of January because the rates overall in the community have gone down. So there is a lot of uncertainty because there are a lot of changing and moving parts in that. But that is the basis for where, um, for why there has been a change in the programme. So All what right. do we know about it? Yes, so can I ask you about that in relation to the decision you've made, first of all, on the age, on 60 being yeah, the cut-off point? Because to to. Yeah, this is a more exactly. cautious approach yeah. than the response in some countries. So why 60? Rachel, that's just what I was about to come to, okay? So what I was saying is the first thing is to try and identify, is there a group that are more at risk or less at risk? What we know from the EMA reports is that most the most of these cases overwhelmingly have occurred in people who are under 60 years of age. But it's not a definite because as it happens, that could be influenced by the fact that there were a lot of younger healthcare workers who were less than 60 years um, uh, vaccinated. But in the UK, where they have had, um, if you like, a tighter look at the number of vaccinated, at the number of these events versus the number who have been vaccinated, what they have found was that the risk increases as you go down in the age groups. So the younger people, because it's probably related to immunological reaction or your body responding in some way to the vaccine, seem to be more at risk than the older people. And there is a gradation. Now, by the same token, the risk of a severe outcome from COVID goes down as you get younger. We all know that for young people, 80-90% of them are going to be asymptomatic. Yes, some of them can have severe COVID. Some of them may end up in ICU and some of them, unfortunately, may end up with a mild illness but have long-term after effects, the so-called long COVID. But the risks overall for that young person is much, much lower than the risks are for a 40-year-old, for a 50-year-old, for a 60-year-old. So where do you find that balance? And it could be argued that we are being overly cautious because we wanted to make sure as far as we can there was a wide safety margin there whether you would cut off at 35 as had been done in the UK isolating only the group who might be almost approaching and not quite but almost approaching an equal risk of a harm from the virus or from the vaccine versus those who are say 16 over where the risks from the virus far 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 outweigh any potential risk from the vaccine. Okay. So we selected that point knowing that we are in a time frame when our risks from the virus are going down and that the majority of the events have occurred in the under 60s until we get more information. This okay. is very much an evolving situation. So that is the reason for it. And in the knowledge that there are alternative vaccines available. Yes, that poses, and I do recognize, and Nayak does recognize, 
that this poses a lot more logistical difficulties. But you know, there may be a dividend in there because as everybody knows, and we've heard your speakers, and I'll come back to their points because they're very relevant. Um, there may be a dividend in there because if you are now um, selected to get the Pfizer vaccine, we know that your time to complete vaccination to your two doses is actually shorter than if you had been scheduled for the AstraZeneca. All right. So overall, you might get to what we would say is complete vaccination sooner. And that might actually have the effect of shortening the whole program. And I know there are people working very hard in the HSE to look at what the um, implementation and the knock-on effects of this are. Yeah, and we can come to all of that, but can I ask you again about this decision in relation to people over 60? Because of previous advice, most people over the age of 70 haven't been getting AstraZeneca anyway. So, in effect, this is going to mean that only people in their 60s will receive this vaccine. Can you understand if some of them are a bit cautious about accepting it? Yes, uh, indeed. And thanks, Rachel, for asking that, because I'd be happy to try and explain it. Um, First of all, what was the reason for the restriction for the over 70s in the first place? There weren't any safety concerns. It was purely that we didn't have enough evidence at that time. And since then, because we're very few people in the original studies, and since then, not only has there been a large trial with AstraZeneca in the United States, where there were a lot of people over 65 involved that has come to conclusion, but we also have the real-world effectiveness data in the UK and in Scotland, um, which has shown really that one dose of the AstraZeneca has been very, very effective at keeping even the most vulnerable and those most at high risk from a severe outcome out of hospital and protecting them. So it has been wonderfully effective. And we've seen that. Look at how the rates in the UK have fallen. Now they've used both vaccines, so it's not just the AstraZeneca, but using the AstraZeneca Mm -hmm. and the Pfizer. And interestingly, in Scotland, it was predominantly the AstraZeneca that was used in the older age groups, overwhelmingly mm. but, so. But, but going back to the question, if I could, isn't there a danger here that on the one hand you're saying to people this vaccine is great, it's safe, it's very effective, but on the other hand you're saying, but we don't want to give it to that many people? What we're saying, Rachel, and I suppose it's the same in everything um, in, in life in a way, this vaccine is very, very, very effective but there is a very small risk and that risk might be slightly higher for some people than others that it could have a harmful effect. And if you didn't have an alternative, you wouldn't think twice about it. But because we have alternatives, we want to make any slight risk of harm even less because with vaccination, you are asking somebody to um, do something and once it's done, that risk, whatever it is, however small, is taken. People take risks every day. And I don't want to balance it like the risk of getting a clot from being on the pill because it's not the same. Because if you, you have a risk with a clot from being on the pill, the risk of a serious consequence from that or from death from that is really, really very, very small. Can we move on on to this other point? Because we are slightly up against the time. Can we move on to this other point raised by the two people from whom we heard at the start? Oh, yes. The question of the second injection for those who've already received their first dose. Now, in some cases, as we've heard, there's now going to be a further delay in that second dose. Why? Well, basically until we get more information. So what do we know so far? We know that this event is very rare. It seems to have occurred only after the first dose because mainly it's first doses that have been given. We do know that there are over 800,000 second doses in the UK and there have been none of these events reported so far. But as we saw from the UK in the beginning when this was raised, it takes some time to gather this information. So there will be more information coming out on that. What we do know on the other side is that this does seem to be um, driven by an immune reaction to the vaccine. And people might be familiar with the concept if they get a reaction to uh, an allergic reaction. This isn't an allergic reaction. I'm just taking it as an example. But if they get a reaction to a drug, they might be more likely to have a reaction to that drug the second time they're seeing. Now, that may not be the case here, but until we find out, we wanted to pause to get more information. And yet you won't be pausing the second dose for some people. 
because it's a balancing of risk. So where the risk of COVID seems to exceed several, several fold, whatever tiny risk is there, that's where we recommended that they should go ahead and get their second dose of vaccine. So what do I know about stretching out that interval? Well, first of all, again, from the UK data that has come out after one dose of AstraZeneca, we know that actually you get very good levels of protection from about 21, 22 days after your dose of vaccine. Furthermore, we know that that protection is sustained, not just to 12 weeks, but probably for quite some time thereafter. So we have time to get the information. And it could be that within that time period, come back and say, look, this is a really rare phenomenon that only occurs when someone's first exposed to the vaccine. No problems. Everyone go ahead, get their second okay. dose. And You've the been- other thing that is happening is people are looking because there is work going on in terms of can you start a vaccination with one dose? And it, the studies have already started in terms of would it be an advantage rather than giving the same dose of vaccine, particularly with the issue of the variants, everything, to come in with a second dose of a different vaccine as a booster to kind of give you wider protection. And so um, there are studies going on in that that should report in the next couple of weeks. And also in some countries, they decided to go that route in the absence of the evidence as yet, but feeling that that will be a very successful route. Given everything that you've said there about the work that's going on, is it possible that the advice you're giving this morning, that this will be changed at some point in the future? Rachel, we started this back in December and there have been several twists and turns around the way. There have been several modifications of advices, whether it related to the order that people were getting it, whether it related to the age groups involved. What I can tell you is we have never been in this situation before where we're dealing with something as the information is literally coming off the boil, trying to integrate it and make the best decisions at any given point in time. I am quite sure that there will be several more twists and turns around the way. And that calls for incredible patience. It calls for incredible patience and understanding from the public It calls from incredible patience from those who are responsible for the implementation of the vaccine, because this is a huge program what people have undertaken and trying to do it safely and effectively. And all I could think of it this morning before coming on is we are trying to steer this very safe path through this pandemic to get us out. And we are getting there. Our rates are coming down. We're beginning to see the opening up and we will get there. So uh, I can only explain as best as I can to people what the reasons behind the decisions are taken. All right. And that's where we are today. But we're lucky. This is a good news story. Okay. I mean, we have alternate vaccines. All of these vaccines are very effective and they are effective. And the people for whom they're recommended should feel really confident. It's not that anybody is being left behind. There is careful thought making sure that this is the right decision, the best decision for you. Professor Karina Butler, thank you for joining us this morning. They head towards the elbow with over a furlong to cover in the national, but it's Rachel Blackmore and Manella Times who are out four lengths clear of Balco de Flo and any second now. Burroughs Saint back in fourth is running on empty. 150 yards to go in the national. Manella Times for JP McManus, Henry de Bromhead, and more significantly, Rachel Blackmore. History in the national. Manella Times wins. Rachel Blackmore, a history maker once again, the first woman to win the 173-year-old Grand National at Aintree. Rachel, good morning. Good morning, Audrey. I don't think I'll ever get tired of hearing the clip of that race anyway. (laughs) That is for sure. You won on the back of Manila Times. Immediately after that race, you said you didn't feel male or female. I don't even feel human, you said. Has it sunk in yet? No, I don't think it has. Uh, I don't know if it will for a while. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. Uh, yeah, it's just it's just incredible. Um, it really, really, really is. You won the world's greatest and most famous horse race. How did that feel on Saturday? Uh, just incredible. Um, you know, everyone grows up, you know, every child with a pony grows up thinking about the Grand National. It was the first race that captured my imagination as a child. Um, you know, you... 
you dream about it, but you know you dream about riding in the race, and and like to actually go and win it is just takes it to a whole new level. So it was just an incredible feeling. I I don't know if my English vocabulary even you know has the word has the word to describe it. Well, look. Let's talk about the, the, that last stage of the race, because at the third last fence, I think, Jet was seven lengths ahead, which is a, a good distance to be in front. At what point did you decide it's time to go? Yeah, I suppose I I was hoping that Jet would come back to us, um, and thankfully he did. Um and when he was when he was coming back just on the turn in, my horse kind of grabbed the bit again and was was happy to happy to go forward. But it, it is a very long run in from the back of the last in Aintree, so you are trying to just save a little bit and, and you know not fully commit until you until you get to the rail and uh, you know the the winning line is in sight then. And will you describe that feeling of knowing that victory is yours? Yeah, you, so I was able to hear the commentator say, just as we came back onto the race course properly, I was able to hear him say that I was four lengths in front and, you know, I knew my horse was going to keep galloping to the line and you kind of start believing it then and it's just absolute elation. Um, it really is, like, it's it's just so massive. It's such a special race. Um, you know, I, just to even be part of that race, I finished tenth in it last year, and I got a I got a kick out of that. And you know, there's no other race that you that you'll you know finish placed in and and get a buzz off it. But uh, you know, the Grand National that's why it's so special because you know that happens. So to actually go and win it, it's just it's indescribable, really. Well, that's it. I mean, you looked like you were even more excited than you were after all your amazing wins at Cheltenham. Was that the case? Yeah, I suppose Cheltenham. Cheltenham, um, you know, your your my first feeling when winning in Cheltenham is of more relief, I think, because Cheltenham has a lot more pressure attached to it. Um, whereas, you know, you don't, you know, you don't feel the same pressure going into the Grand National. You know, people don't have the same expectation because, you know, there's forty horses, four plus miles. You know, anything can happen. So. You know, you need so much luck in a race like that. Um, you know, you need so much to go your way. So, yeah, it's just, you know, you don't have that pressure going in. So you don't have that instinctive relief uh, when you cross the line. Would you have heard the commentator saying you were four lengths ahead had the crowd been there? No, I don't think, you know, you wouldn't have. Definitely not. Um, definitely not. So, uh yeah, the, the, the one very small, slight advantage to uh, un, the unfortunate of having no crowd. Yeah, exactly. Tell me, why did you pick Manila Times to ride? Was your decision influenced in any way by what happened in the Gold Cup, a Plutard coming in second to Manila and Indo? Um, so they both originated from uh, John Allen's um runs a very successful uh, point-to-point yard, so he sourced both, both horses, but no, their their names are all that would have attached them. Um, the, the prefix of their name, I suppose. Uh, no, look, Henry de Bromhead had three runners in the race, and um, you know I, I had ridden Manila times on two previous occasions, and was very lucky that the um, JP McManus and his family were, were happy for me to ride him again. Um, so, look, I was just thrilled to ride him, and uh, yeah, it, it was brilliant when it all worked out. Well, it was absolutely incredible all round because Ireland's horses took 10 of the first 11 finishing positions. That is remarkable, isn't it? Yeah, look, it's phenomenal. Um, you know, there's there's a lot of good horses and a lot of good trainers over here. And um, yeah, you'd be delighted you're on this side of, of the sea anyway. And you are the best jockey in the world right now. That is what everyone is saying. No one's arguing. You are winning the biggest races on the best horses. How does all of that sit with you, Rachel? Look, I just feel extremely lucky. Um, you know, you can you can be the best jockey, but you, you're you're not going to win any races unless you have the ammunition under, under you. You know, I'm very lucky to be associated with some very good trainers. Um, Henry de Bromhead is, you know, exceptional. His achievements this year, you know, they, they're just incredible, you know, to win the, the three big races in Cheltenham and then to win the Grand National and have the second in the Grand National in Balakota Flow as well. 
Like, it's really just phenomenal stuff. And I'm just delighted to be part of everything down there and part of the team. And, you know, you're in a position to be getting rides on horses of, of that calibre, you know. Yeah, but you are a huge part of it. We heard from Aidan O'Brien on the sports news earlier on. He talked about you being hungry, intelligent. You ride the horse rather than the race. Yeah, look, it's uh, it's you know, as I say, when you're when you're riding something that has you know the ability to not make you panic, um, it's uh, it's just a fantastic feeling, and it's a position a lot of jockeys would love to be in. So what's next for you? Is the season almost over? I think is Punchestown the last big festival? Yeah, we've Punchestown um at the end of the month and that's that is the end of this season, but um in the world of jumps racing the next season kicks off straight away a couple of days later. So um yeah, that's that is the world of, of jumps racing. So we have a we've a small break at the end of June. I think we've um there's maybe tw- 12 days there at the end of June so we'll, we'll we'll take a bit of a break then Right so how will you mark your success how will you celebrate it Oh we'll have to celebrate it properly uh, when 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 the world is back to normal I think we'll uh, we'll have to mark it with, with a bit of a party We certainly will it'll be a big party uh, across the country Rachel great to talk to you enjoy your success and know that everyone across the country is so proud of you thank you very much for joining us on Morning Ireland Thank you all so much KVC Bank Ireland has announced plans which may lead it to leave the Irish market. It has entered into a memorandum of understanding with Bank of Ireland, which could see a deal where Bank of Ireland commits to buy KBC's performing loan assets and liabilities. Peter Rubin, CEO of KBC Bank Ireland, joins me. Peter, this came out of the blue this morning. Why is KBC looking to leave the Irish market? Yes, uh, good morning, Petula. Thank you for, for having me. I'm grateful to have the opportunity to outline um, uh, what we have announced today uh, between uh, Bank of Ireland and and, and KBC Bank Ireland. So uh, we have indeed signed a memorandum of understanding that starts a process uh, um, whereby we will explore the possibility for Bank of Ireland acquiring uh, the um, performing loan assets and liabilities and uh, the performing business, actually, of KBC Bank Ireland. We also announced that we are um, reviewing our options uh, for our non-performing loan book with uh, the potential of divesting also that, uh, that loan book. And indeed, should those um, transactions uh, uh, com- uh, complete, ultimately that would result in, in KBC withdrawing from the market. But I would like to stress And Peter, for uh, how long has KBC been considering this move? Were you motivated by Ulster Bank's decision to leave the market and further cons- consolidation of banking here in Ireland? Well, this simply has come about uh, as a result of discussion between banks and the, the, let's say, the offer that is on the table is, is a commercial offer that, in the interest of shareholders, we, uh, we have to uh, examine further. And I repeat, it is a process that is starting. We, we have not reached any conclusions and any deal is subject to further negotiations and regulatory and, and government approvals. So we have to consider actually that, that offer that's there, um, uh, that is our fiduciary duty also. Uh, but I would like to reassure uh, customers and staff that, of course, their interests are also foremost part of that process. And, 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 and you know, what we're looking for is a balanced deal that, that makes sure that the interests of shareholders, but also customers and staff, uh, are, ba- are, are, are equally uh, protected. So there is a long way to go. Uh, my main message to customers today is you don't, they don't have to worry. Nothing is changing. We are open for business and we continue to be open for business. Um, and I think that's, uh, that's an important message. Yeah. What does it mean exactly for staff? Could there be potential job losses down the road? Well, it, it's far too early to to, uh, to talk about any aspects, also this aspect of, of a deal that basically doesn't exist today. And so the, the memorandum of understanding is, is really an announcement that we, that both parties have a serious interest in trying to find an agreement. But that process only starts now. And indeed, uh, uh, finding a fair and balanced outcome for staff and for customers, and of course a deal that is commercially viable for both parties. Those are the three elements that we have to carefully balance. Um, we, we always, uh, you know, uh, have taken a very fair and, and, um, and uh, 
uh, open approach with our staff. We're not going to change that. Now we'll continue doing that. And whatever deal might emerge at the end of this process will definitely uh, uh, take into account the interests of staff. And today, as I said, nothing changes for staff. We are certainly not, uh, I mean, we're, we're continuing and, and, and staff will be there to serve as customers. So it is, it is very, very early days. But the both, both us and Bank of Ireland thought uh, it, uh, it was in the interest of all uh, of customers and, and staff in particular that we would be upfront announcing our intention to uh, to actually explore this route further. And this is all uh, that we're saying today. Is the Irish banking market unattractive? Well, look, we we have been active in this market for 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 many many years. Yeah, and uh, I've been here personally now two years. And we have, uh, I think, been the competition in this market uh, uh, in a very, very active way. So I think every market is 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 competitive and has its own challenges. And 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 in that sense, the Irish market is no different from any other. What what's happening here simply is we have uh, here an offer, a commercial offer on the table that, yeah, is of a nature that we have to consider this uh, further. Uh, we have to explore that and balance that uh, compared to what, uh, of course, uh, the commercial outcome would be of a prolonged stay in the market. So uh, that's the process we're in. Okay, Peter Rubin, CEO of KBC Bank Ireland. Thank you very much for talking to us this morning. Now, 16 new countries were added to the mandatory hotel quarantining list from early this morning. They include the United States, France, Belgium, Italy, Turkey and Luxembourg. Samantha Libreri is at Dublin Airport for us this morning. Samantha, what are things like there this morning? What are the, uh, in terms of flights arriving in, how many, how many people? Well, Mary, other than the announcements that you might hear behind me, that might be slightly drowning me out. It's very quiet here in Dublin Airport this morning. And since 4am, mandatory hotel quarantine, as you said, applies to 16 more countries, including the USA, Canada, France, Belgium and Italy. Now, five flights landed in Dublin Airport from the US since five o'clock this morning. And I understand that just about a dozen people are actually entering the country from the US with an even smaller number transiting elsewhere. There were two flights, one that came in from New York's JFK Airport, another one that came from Newark. They both had nobody entering Ireland on them. Um, around three people, I understand, came off the Chicago flight who were subject to mo- a mandatory hotel quarantine. And just in the past few minutes, um, a flight has landed from Philadelphia and it's expected there's about eight people there. So you can see that the numbers aren't quite, quite small. Now, when those people do come through, we actually won't be able to talk to them as they're being escorted by members of the Defence Forces who meet them in the baggage area and they're t- taken straight out to a bus that's waiting outside the terminal building. But I have been speaking to a number of people who are departing for the U.S. this morning, and they'll obviously be subject to mandatory hotel quarantine on their return. I spoke to three um, U.S. citizens, and interestingly, all of them were returning to the U.S. to get their vaccine, which they'd learned in recent days had become available to them. Let's hear from one of them. Uh, I'm Donal Whelan, and I'm heading to Washington, D.C. And Donal, why are you heading back to the States today? Uh, To get vaccinated. And when will you receive that vaccine? Is it one dose or two doses? Uh, the original plan was to get the Johnson & Johnson, but now I'll be getting the Pfizer one since that's been pulled. Um, and then, so I'll get the Pfizer one tomorrow and hopefully get the second dose in three weeks' time before I return. And will, you will be returning to Ireland, so what's your plan? Will you quarantine? Yeah, I'll quarantine if that's still required at the time. Uh, I'm hoping it won't be. I'm hoping they'll lift it for uh, vaccine recipients. Um, I saw that lawsuit going through from the Israeli woman so I'm hoping that carries through a little bit and, and if you don't and you are subject to mandatory quarantine what then uh, do the quarantine I have the money set aside for it for just in case so and you mentioned to me where that money was coming from yeah the the Joe Biden stimulus check uh, that all, all Americans received so that's not quite enough but almost for the and wh- why do you need to return to, to Ireland oh, I'm doing my PhD in UCD um, and how do you feel about, when was the last time you were back in the States? How do you feel about going back? Oh, last time I was back was right at the start of the pandemic. I flew home, afraid the borders would close. Um, so I've been back in Ireland since September now. And how recently did you make your plans to return for the vaccine? A week ago. I got, yeah, I found out a week ago that I had a vaccine appointment date and just booked the flights. 
Samantha, the authorities are hoping that the establishment of mandatory hotel quarantining will lead to a drop in travel of up to 80%. On the evidence you're seeing so far, and even in terms of advanced bookings on flights, would it appear that the drop-off is in that area, that it is significant? Well, yes, Mary. Uh, There was a lot of reports at the weekend that because the government had given a week's notice that these countries were being added to the list and there had been quite a lot of travel between Ireland and those countries, that a lot of people were on the move in recent days. But Dublin Airport say that hasn't um, borne out in the numbers they're seeing. They say the overall, um, there hasn't been an increase in passengers from those 16 countries that have been added to the list. They say some routes um, were busier than others, um, but others have been quieter than they would have expected in recent days. Yesterday alone, Dublin Airport tell me that the flights that came in here were 60% empty for the most part. Today, there's 20 flights listed um, to arrive in Dublin Airport, Terminal 1 and Terminal 2. From what I can gather, nine of those countries are now subject to mandatory hotel quarantine. You've, you've heard about the five US flights already with the very small numbers coming in. There's two from Paris, due. There's also one from the Middle East, or sorry, two from the Middle East and one from Turkey coming in throughout the rest of the day. So if those small numbers um, continue, you could, you could assess that it's not going to um, cause a huge challenge to the mandatory hotel quarantine system capacity, as people might have feared. And we know Stephen Donnelly has said in recent days there's about 650 rooms there at the moment. That will rise to more than 900 on Monday okay. and 1,300 the following week. And he said that will be more than sufficient to deal with demand. Samantha Library at Dublin Airport, thank you. been a huge reaction um, in some quarters to the Italian ambassador to Ireland's uh, video message criticising the government's move and Ambassador Paolo Sarpi, good morning and welcome to Morning Ireland. Good morning, good morning, my deal. So a lot of us have seen your, your video where you talk about freedom of movement being sacred, but Stephen Donnelly on primetime last night, our health minister, saying he makes no apology. He's following the advice from the medical authorities here. First of all, let me clarify something. That declaration of yesterday it was not a declaration uh, directly for the Irish government, but it was simply a declaration to my community and that it was, uh, in a way, used uh, to, to as a declaration against the government and given to the, the Irish Times. But it was a normal declaration to, to my community. As you know, uh, this community, the Italian community in, in Ireland, is uh, more or less, it was at the beginning of uh, the pandemic, more or less 50,000 people. And so it's uh, approximately uh, 100 of the entire population of the republic and so uh, for me it's important to get in touch with them absolutely and and, and they are your concern and and that's your yeah. a, jo- a yeah. job as ambassador here in ireland but can i just put this to you and, and because in that address to them you do say freedom of movement is sacred you do say this is discriminatory against italians but we yeah. have seen <clears throat> other eu states at different times in this pandemic, unilaterally imposing border restrictions or travel brands or bringing in quarantines quarantines on the basis of being temporary measures to meet a health emergency. Yeah, 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 you are absolutely right. And I respect absolutely Mr. Donnelly. I mean, he's he's doing a very difficult job to to be Minister of Health in a pandemic. It's one of the most difficult jobs that you can have. But having uh, said that, uh, the point is, uh, uh, we, it is not clear for us and also for the other EU member states concerned why uh, you are applying such a measure. And uh, we want to understand why. And simply the letter I've sent yesterday to Minister Donnelly is uh, to understand from him and uh, from the ministry why uh, these uh, measures have been applied for this case for for some member people. states uh, yeah, and some not member for states and, and Italy among among them and the, the strange thing is uh, one of the primary reason is uh, uh, saying that uh, okay we have to fight against the va- so-called variants but uh, let let just explain something uh, in these four or five countries of the European Union uh, that have normally among the best uh, health systems. We, we study very well the, 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 the problems of the variants, and we have data 
on them. In mm-hmm. many other cases, there are no data. And so, in a way, finally, we, we end targeted for, for this, for being uh, serious in the inspection of, of the variants. And uh, I've sent uh, my letter to the minister with our indicating our focal point. Okay, so you want to know if the variants are the basis, because it doesn't seem to you that that's logical uh, in terms of Italy, to to single Italy out there. Final point, Ambassador Serpi, the Taoiseach last night saying he anticipates that, you know, by the summer, and the European Commission has already spoken about this, a European-wide travel system, and, you know, the government did agree also yesterday there will be different rules for the vaccinated. Yeah, I mean, in Italy we are uh, almost at 15 million people vaccinated. We are going on fast, and uh, we hope that for I mean, East, uh, in the summertime we'll be fully vaccinated. And, uh, and so, I mean, uh, I hope that at least through this way there will not be uh, problems, uh, because free circulation of uh, people, move uh, people, uh, capitals, uh, and goods are, is the basis of our market is the basis of, of the European Union. And if you have to apply measures for uh, sanitary reasons, you, certainly we have done it, everybody has done it, but we have simply closed the borders for a certain period. You cannot be, in a way, selective if you are not really precise okay. on, on what you do. This is the, the important. Otherwise, you know, it is a way of distorting the market and, and use it a, as a tool. And this is not correct, simply. And I say it with a lot of respect for Ireland and, uh, and, and you know, the Italians that live here uh, used to like to be, uh, call themselves the Irlandians. You know, we, we, we have so much in common. So th- if I speak uh, a, a bit in a, in a direct way in this case, it is because we really oh, care nice. about Ireland and we, are part, we feel, our community feels to be really part of it and we want to give well our contribution well thank you ambassador serpi for your directness and for uh, your diplomacy and, and joining us on morning ireland this morning And we're going next to the United States, where the police officer who fatally shot an unarmed black man in a suburb of Minneapolis has resigned from the force, as has the local chief of police. Protests have been continuing there over the death of Dante Wright. And meanwhile, just 10 miles away, the trial has been taking place of the former officer accused of killing George Floyd. The Irish Times Washington correspondent Suzanne Lynch is in Minneapolis and she's been telling me about those two resignations. Two high profile resignations in terms of this a new uh, focus on the killing of Dante Wright, a 20-year-old who was killed by a police officer on Sunday, which has sparked these new protests here. The police officer who shot and, and ultimately killed Dante Wright, uh, she has resigned, and so too has the police chief of Brooklyn Centre. Um, so while those resignations were welcomed uh, by the mayor and by a lot of people in the community here, uh, others were saying a protest last night that they would prefer uh, these people uh, to face more of an investigation that uh, the police officer in question in particular uh, should should have been fired rather than handed in her resignation. And they are looking uh, for more of a uh, response from authorities to this incident that happened on Sunday. And it's emerged that Kimberly Potter, the officer involved and the officer who has now resigned, she was an immensely experienced police officer. She was. Um, Miss Potter, um, who is the, is the police officer who fired that shot on Sunday, she was a 26-year veteran of the police force. She joined this police force uh, when she was age 22. Her husband is also a police officer. Uh, she's highly experienced, um, was also uh, leading a member of the union at one point, um, and uh was very well kind of known among her colleagues here. Now, she did issue a statement announcing her resignation, 
yesterday saying that she had loved every minute of being a police officer and serving the community to the best of her ability, but that it was in the best interest of everyone for her to resign. Now, some people uh, took issue with that statement, the fact that she said she'd loved every minute of it. Um, they were looking for a bit more maybe contrition from her at this point. But at the moment, uh, she had originally been put on administrative leave. She's now resigned. And uh, today we may hear whether there will be further charges uh, brought against her. Dante Wright's family have been talking about what happened. What have they been saying? Yes, so his uh, mother and father appeared on Good Morning America, a big uh, TV breakfast show on Tuesday here. Um, and they spoke, his mother spoke in very emotional terms about her final conversation with her son. He called her when he was pulled over by the police on Sunday. He was pulled over uh, for a traffic violation. Police have said that his registration uh, plate in his car was out of date. Um, and she described how he spoke to her, he panicked and she knew something was wrong. Um, then the family, his mother and other members of his family gathered outside the court case uh, courtroom here in Minneapolis, where the, the separate Derek Chauvin trial into the murder of George Floyd is taking place. Uh, they held a press conference on Tuesday uh, outside that courtroom. So you had the families of George Floyd and the families of, of Dante Wright, who were there. And again, the mother spoke um, in very you know strong terms about uh, what her son meant to her. Uh, uh, the deceased man's two-year-old son was also present there with his mother. You've been observing the protests over the past couple of days. What's it been like? Well, um, this is very much a city on edge. Uh, there are helicopters swirling. Um, there are curfews in place now. Um, there are constant sirens and police cars going through the city. Um, last night I was back at the police centre uh, outside uh, in Brooklyn Centre, the suburb, about 15 minutes drive north of downtown Minneapolis. And again, there were there were very uh, it became uh, very tense and very violent. It started off with peaceful protests. Um, lots of activist groups um, with leaders getting up and speaking about police injustice uh, and, and demanding answers about what happened to this young man last Sunday. Then we saw uh, some of the National Guard troops and heavily armed police officers move from outside the police headquarters, you know, with, with guns and full military, full riot gear and start trying to move those protesters back. So again, we saw um, they launched tear gas and flash grenades to try and disperse most people had left by the curfew, but there were still, you know, groups of dozens of people who were still there. And um, some of them were, were hurling kind of improvised implements at the police, but others, some were kneeling on the ground, some were holding their heads, they're holding their arms above their heads in silence. Uh, but a lot of the buildings around the area remained boarded up. There had been a lot of looting in previous nights um, and just that heavy police presence was, was really felt there. And that was Suzanne Lynch of the Irish Times in Minneapolis. Well, restrictions ease a little bit more today in the north as well. We'll talk about that in a few moments. But things were much quieter generally in Belfast on Saturday and Sunday nights after a week which saw rioting, extensive damage and injury to around 90 PSNI officers. The rioting involving some people as young as 12 saw youths throwing bricks, fireworks and petrol bombs at the police. The violence largely concentrated in areas where criminal gangs linked to loyalist paramilitaries have significant influence. We can talk to our northern editor now, Vincent Kearney. Vincent, a quieter weekend. Why? A number of factors, Audrey, uh, and it hadn't looked this way. Certainly last Thursday, there there was an expectation and a fear that this violence could possibly escalate. There were quite a few loyalist protests planned across Northern Ireland. Some of those protests were potentially going to be at interface areas where Catholic and Protestant communities live side by side. And, and when that happens, that escalates the potential for conflict. Um, so a number of things happened, principally on the loyalist side. The, the death of Prince Philip undoubtedly was a big part of this dynamic because if you think about the, the reasoning the rationale we were told uh, for that violence it was that there 
British culture and identity was under attack. Well, a big part of that British culture and identity is a loyalty to the royal family. Um, that's how they define part of their Britishness. So while there were a lot of young people involved, and loyalist paramilitary organisations say they were not involved at an organisational level, it's as clear as the nose in your face, Audrey, that, that members of those paramilitary organisations, individual members, were heavily involved uh, in manipulating and encouraging those young people to become involved in violence. So clearly what happened was that those organisations got the word out that, look, look lads, you can't take this, the streets in protest, you can't continue this violence as a mark of respect to Prince Philip. And, and that happened uh, after his death on Friday. Apart from two sort of outlying areas, there was a Lordless estate in Korean County Antrim, and then the Tigers Bay area of North Belfast, uh, where small groups did engage in violence. And in North Belfast, that then provoked a response from nationalist uh, use in the New Lodge area. But then the message clearly got out, uh, and Lotus stopped coming onto the streets. And there was also a, a very big commitment and effort already from community workers on both sides. Um, after nights, successive nights of, of violence, when clearly the, the appeals from politicians were working, sports organisations and community groups put members out onto the ground. But it was very noticeable in West Belfast and uh, Springfield Road, uh, the nationalist uh, side of that interface there. Uh, there were dozens of community workers on the street on Friday evening from local GA club, from sports clubs, from community groups. And at one point when small groups had started to gather, they were actually heavily outnumbered by members of community organisations who talked sense into them and told them to get off the streets, and they did so. So that combination of factors uh, has led to this fairly rapid de-escalation at this point. Well, well, that's good. And, and I suppose the, the thinking now is, will this be turned on again? Or can what happened over the weekend be built upon to ensure that this is the end of it? The hope, certainly going forward, Audrey, is that once you break the cycle of violence, it's harder to pick that up again. It'll depend what happens politically as well. Um, Naomi Long, the Justice Minister last week, had urged politicians, unionist politicians in particular, to dial down their rhetoric. Well, this now gives politicians a a, a period of time to do just that, to dial down that rhetoric. Uh, They'll hope that the word will filter through to young people on both sides that this isn't the way forward. They can resolve things politically. Those talks can on between between the, the UK and the EU over the protocol will help unionist politicians because whatever level of progress is being made in terms of the optics, it looks like something might be getting done about the protocol. And it's also taken the sting out of that fairly corrosive debate around the, the future of the chief counsel of the PSNI, Simon Byrne, uh, because unionists were saying that they had no faith in the police. But it's very difficult for unionist politicians to criticise the chief counsel when his officers are coming under attack. As you say, already almost 90 police officers injured. So it's taken the sting out of that debate as well. The danger in Northern Ireland, Audrey, is it just takes one little thing for this all to go again. Perhaps next weekend, after the, the official mourning period ends, uh, Lotus could decide at the start of next week, well, they've done their bit, um, they've held back, and they now want to pick up where they left off. And the other danger is that over the weekend, at some point, Republicans in an interface area could provoke a Lotus response by doing something insensitive around the funeral of, of Prince Philip. So police and politicians will be quite nervous that, yes, Yes, it has settled. It looks hopeful at this stage, but it doesn't take much for things to kick off again. Vincent, stay on the line. I'll come back to you to talk about the restrictions in just a moment. But you mentioned the protocol there and those talks. Our Europe editor, Tony Connolly, is on the line now because, Tony, we know that some unionist leaders have linked the violence to loyalist tensions over the Irish sea border imposed as a result of Brexit and the deal between the EU and the British government. You're reporting this morning that talks between Brussels and London have started, which could resolve some of the disagreement over the protocol. Tell us more. Yes, Audrey. Well, there have been talks at technical level for some time. And on the 31st of March, the UK provided a document to the European Commission. um, Some call it a roadmap, which would show how they're going to implement the protocol. There are a number of outstanding areas, border control posts, uh, permanent border control posts at ports. They're the uh, checkpoints for live animals and and uh, animal-derived uh, food products. Um, there are other outstanding issues around uh, the EU having access to databases, um, checks and paperwork involving goods going from Northern Ireland to Great Britain. I mean, these are areas which still have to be fully implemented under the protocol, which, of course, is a binding international agreement. Now, in return for the UK spelling out how it's going to implement these things, 
the European Commission is signalling that there will be greater leniency on the more sensitive issues around how the protocol is applied. Um, and what I'm hearing is that the technical work at least is bearing fruit. There is a positive atmosphere around, around those talks, uh, but it still needs a political push. And that's why we're expecting perhaps this week, if not early next week, a meeting, perhaps a phone call between David Frost, uh, the UK's chief minister on uh, Brexit and the Northern Ireland Protocol, and Maro Shevchevich, who's his opposite number on the European Commission. Um, so th there are, th there is work underfoot, uh, on, underway, and th there are, um, you know, positive signals that technical work is starting to bear fruit. Okay, thank you very much, Tony. And just finally, back to you, Vincent. The, the restrictions easing on this side of the border today, um, they had already begun to ease north of the border a couple of weeks ago, and that process um, is speeding up today then. What, what can people do from today? A range of things that have changed today, not the big ticket items, you know, non-essential <clears throat> retail remains closed, but they, they can operate click-and-click services. Um, outdoor retail is allowed to open, like garden centres and, and car washes. Um, <clears throat> people can gather in larger numbers, up to 10 people from two households can gather in outdoors in a private garden, up to 15 people can take part in sport. So signs that, that it's moving in the right direction. Now, the executive will meet on, on Thursday, uh, at that stage they're expected to agree in indicative timescales for what happens next for a full reopening of non-essential retail and of the hospitality sector. But we may not get that detail on Thursday, Audrey, because of the, the morning period, there are protocols in place, which means that no ministers are supposed to make announcements. Um, so what might happen on Thursday is that the executive behind closed doors could agree this indicative um, timescale, but we're unlikely then to get the, the weekly press conference held by Arlene Foster and Michelle O'Neill because of those protocols. So they might issue them simply in the form of a press release, or they might agree them, but not actually unveil them publicly until early next week because of these protocols in place. OK, Vincent, thank you very much indeed. Vincent Kearney, our Northern Editor, Tony Connolly, our Europe Editor. Thank you both very much for joining us. Now, today, April the 15th, is the Feast of St. Ruan. He's a 6th century abbot who was known as one of the Twelve Apostles of Ireland and made many a prophecy in his day. And there's a tradition in Ireland that you can hear the first cuckoo calling on St. Ruin's feast day. Niall Hatch, Development Officer of Birdwide, Birdwatch Ireland. Uh, St. Ruin's prophecies and uh, the first call of the cuckoo on the 15th of April, Niall. Uh, truth or fiction? No, I think that St. Ruin was certainly onto something there because this is the time when most people do start to hear the cuckoo. Now, it's not the first. The first record we've had reliably so far this year was actually on the 31st of March, but it is at this time in April when you expect the big bulk of these to come in. And that's when we in Birdwatch Ireland, through our Spring Alive project, we tend to get most of the records coming in. So there is something in it. And particularly in the West, is that right? That's where you might hear the cuckoo calling? Uh, yes, the, the species is still widespread across Ireland, but it's much thinner on the ground than it used to be. Um, it's not on the endangered list yet. By, by coincidence, actually, Birdwatch Ireland has just issued its red list of birds of conservation concern in Ireland. 26% of Ireland's bird species are on that list. The cuckoo is not. It's still on the green list, but we want to keep it that way. The West is certainly the stronghold, particularly the Burren, the Aran Islands. There's very good populations there. Um, they like the boglands of Roscommon and Leitrim. The Wicklow Mountains are good as well. Um, but a lot of other areas, they've disappeared, sadly. And many people are familiar with you um, through your work talking about birds over the years. But the fact that this finding now, this survey between Birdwatch Ireland and the Royal Society for the Protection of Birds in Northern Ireland is finding that Irish birds are more endangered than ever before. What's, how do you feel about that? It really is very worrying. It's really stark findings. Uh, the, the, the declines in bird populations over just the, the last few years have been really shocking across a wide range of species. So seabirds like puffins are affected. Garden birds like the greenfinch are affected. Breeding waders like snipe, curlew affected as well. So it really is very scary. And what's going wrong? It seems there are many things going wrong. We, you know, there's problems in terms of intensification of agriculture. Climate change is playing a role. We're having issues in, in relation to the migratory journeys of some of these birds. Uh, we're seeing a lack of food supply for some of our wintering water birds, like ducks and geese and so on. Uh, so there's many different things happening. Uh, and of course, Dáil Éireann has declared that Ireland is in the middle of a biodiversity and climate crisis. Um, more action is needed to reverse these declines and to protect our birds and other wildlife. What particular species are you most worried about? 
so many of our farmland birds are declining badly. So birds like the yellowhammer, a beautiful little yellow sparrow-like bird, uh, another a bird of prey called the kestrel as well. Until quite recently, a very common sight along the sides of motorways, hovering there looking for, for mice, which is what they feed on. Uh, that species has declined massively in just the last five or six years. So that's very scary for us. And then, of course, there's birds like the corncrake and the curly birds, which where the declines have long been noted, uh, but the situation is not really improving. And coming back to the, uh, just briefly on that uh, before we wrap up the programme, uh, what can people do if, you know, they want to make their, how, how do they make, you know, Ireland a better place for birds? I think there's things we can all do. I think we need to make sure that more space is given to biodiversity. We need to you know, not do things like not cutting hedges during the summer months. We need to support conservation organisations like Bird Ireland through membership. Um, reporting sightings of things like the cuckoo to our, to our Spring Alive project, which we've been running with, with Mooney Goes Wild on the radio programme, that can be done as well. And talking to elected representatives and making it clear that biodiversity is important and pushing for proper agri-environment measures to benefit the farmers who are farming biodiversity and therefore benefiting all of us. We need to value it much more. All right. Well, thank you very much uh, for your valuable time this morning. That's Niall Hatch from Birdwatch Ireland talking to us about the tradition of St. Ruan and the first call of the cuckoo. You've been listening to a selection of stories from this week's Morning Ireland.